At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Today, we invite you to join us in our message series and dive deeper into what God's Word has for us today. We are in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, and my heart is full of joy. Uh, I love baptisms. Um, just such a wonderful reminder of uh, our own baptism in Christ. And, um, but I'm also full of joy because we almost were not able to have the services we, uh, the building had no power for a couple of days, and so we were praying, and we were desperately asking the Lord, and so this more, uh, yesterday came back, and we were like, yes! So I am so excited. For the majority of my Christian life, meeting on Sundays was a given, and in the last year, it's been like iffy. So, uh, so grateful about that. Um, also, just to remind you that the, um, the backpacks, if you uh, are helping us fill uh, those backpacks to give them to children in need as they go back to school, please bring it back next Sunday. When? Okay, awesome. Because the following day, that Monday, we're going to start giving them out to uh, the families that need them. So I know some families have done five. Even I know one that did 10. I mean, it's just uh, incredible. But uh, whatever backpacks you took, please bring them back. And also, I know that a number of you have been without power in the last uh, week. And if that's you, and if that's represented a hardship for you, physical or otherwise, please do let us know. Don't suffer in silence. Uh, we want to help you. We can help you. We are able to do that, uh, but only if you let us know. So just get in touch with us in any way that we can be of help. The, you know, we are a family, and we're here for one another. Ecclesiastes 2, let's go to our Lord in prayer. Oh, Father, wow, my heart rejoices, and my spirit exalts in you, our God, You've answered our prayers and you brought back our power in time so we would gather together today to lift high the name of Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the risen Lamb who was slain. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for bringing us together and allowing us to experience this gathering. This is a gift from you to us. And we receive it as such. And we rejoice with great joy now as we receive your word with thankfulness, with humility, with spiritual discernment. We want to take what you have for us, Lord. We want to taste and see that you, Lord, are good. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Ecclesiastes 2, verse 12, the teacher says, So I turn to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For of the wise, as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me. For all is vanity and is striving after wind. The word of the Lord. 
We continue our series, Smoke and Mirrors, Deciphering Truth in a World of Truths. Uh, We're studying the first two chapters of Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament. Our goal, as was the goal of the teacher in Ecclesiastes, is to clear the mist, the illusions that we build our lives on so that we can get to bedrock, to solid reality. So we've looked at naturalism, intellectualism, hedonism, and today we're looking at individualism. Now, individualism has some good aspects and some darker ones. Individualism can be defined as a social theory that favors freedom of action for the individual over um, state or collective control. So, for example, one of the animating principles in the founding of the United States of America was that each person would be able to practice the religion of their choosing rather than the one that was sanctioned by the state, as was the case in England in the 17 and 1800s. And so, so there are uh, so from the very beginning, America has been a highly individualistic uh, culture, uh, whereas, for example, China is not. Now, there are some good aspects of individualism. Um, in fact, the rise of the individual in our culture is a byproduct of the influence of Christianity. The Bible emphasizes the worth of every human life, regardless of family of origin or group identity or national citizenship. Just one statement to this effect from the Apostle Paul is explosive, and there are many. But I'm thinking of Galatians 2, verse 20, one of my favorites. You know, and the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Wow. I mean, that Jesus Christ, the king with universal power, gave himself for me, a mere individual, and loved me, a mere individual, should just blow our minds. There is nothing that a man or a woman can receive uh, from where they can receive greater worth than to know that the son of God, Jesus Christ, died for them. Nothing comes even close to that. That it's not just your tribe or your clan or your family that matters. You, you matter to God. That was the message of Christianity that took the Roman world by storm. And that's still the message. Sometimes Christians say, I don't know what to say to my not yet believing friend uh, about God, but I want to. I understand the angst, but know that your friend most likely lives with a high degree of hopelessness in life, as we're going to see in a few moments. And so you can simply say to him or to her, you matter to God. Can I show you how? And then just share Christ with them. It's that simple. And so there's Christian antecedent for the rise of the individual in the West. However, When you cut off the individual from God, as our secular culture has done, then the individual becomes autonomous. Autonomous, an entity in himself or in herself. And so uh, the individual becomes self-deified, self-defined, and self-determined. Self-deified, you're your own God. Self-defined, you and no one else can tell you who you are and self-determined. You choose your own destiny, your own purpose in life. Now, if you grew up in the West, that kind of belief system uh, runs deep in your veins, Christian or not. And so one of the things that this weekly gathering that we do does for us as the people of God is that it washes us with, uh, washes us clean with the word of God so that we can reconnect our sense of self to our God who made us and to the kingdom he's made us a part of. So now we are individuals in family. 
We are individual members in one collective body. But in Christ, we don't lose our individuality, which is amazing. Just like in marriage. You know, in a healthy marriage, neither spouse loses their individuality. Now, as a guy, you might end up with more pillows and teacups than you ever thought, but you're still an individual. You know, I'm not a smaller, but a bigger person, a better human being, because I'm married to Anna. Likewise, in Christ, we borrow from and lean on the family of God to grasp the depth of Christ's love for us, which fills us with the fullness of God. And so here's the question that we're gonna probe today. Why don't accomplishments ultimately satisfy? Why don't accomplishments ultimately satisfy? We're gonna see in due time how this is tied to individualism. It's not hard to see the link, but here we go. Ecclesiastes 2, verse 12, the preacher says, so I turn to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. So after his experiment with pleasure, as we saw last week, the teacher now comes back to this theme of wisdom. We know, remember, that in chapter one, he already delved into this once, but he's not done with wisdom, not even close. In fact, wisdom is a recurring theme throughout the book because wisdom is the lens through which the teacher understands and analyzes life and the pinnacle of life under the sun. And so what he's saying is, if the kind of accomplishment that the king, like Solomon, did, left him empty, then no one else is going to be able to do better. At best, there'll be lesser copies. That's why he asks in verse 12, what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. So what he's saying is, um, to look for more pleasure, more accomplishments is not going to yield anything. We're not going to make any headway with this. Let's see if wisdom will sharpen our insight. And so in verse 13, he says, he saw there's more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. That's hardly insightful, right? I mean, anyone would agree with that statement, at least today we would. But then he combines it in, in chapter 14, and he says, the wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. Now, I'm sure that we've all known people who just seem to always get embroiled in the difficulties of life. You know what I'm talking about? Like drama just follows them wherever they go. You know, they're kind of like that old cartoon character that wherever he went, a rain cloud followed. You know what I'm talking about? When I was little, I, that made no sense to me. And then I grew up and started talking to people. And I was like, oh, okay, I, I see what that is. But it's so easy to get caught up in their drama and their story because in their way of telling it, there's always an internal logic, you know? So you're like, okay, so, so yeah, I, so, you, so you wire lots of money to someone you didn't know. Hmm. <laughs> I can see how you would do that, right? Like, it's just, you just get caught up in their story. The teacher says, the fool walks in darkness, but the wise person has his eyes in his head. Now, we don't talk about wisdom a ton in our culture. We talk more about people who are smart or witty. You know, people who sidestep life's problems or extricate themselves from tough, tight spots and always come out on top. You know, they do big things. They build big companies. They, they live large. 
They're the influencers, the, the goats, you know, the greatest of all time, the CEOs, the, the commanders in chief. They're the people that you and I want to be like. You probably follow them on social media. That was King Solomon. That's who he was. And he didn't get there through dumb luck. No, but through effort and determination and, very importantly, wisdom. We love success stories, which is what the teacher is telling us. He is exhibit A. We love success stories. We love to, to ask, how did you do it? But then the teacher, once again, tells us something surprising about life. When he looked at life and he saw the life of the wise person and of the fool. Here's what he says in the middle of verse 14. And yet I perceived that the same event happens to all of them. The same event. So now the teacher uh, introduces the event that he has anxiety over. And he's not alone in that struggle. Look at how, uh, look at how his heart starts uh, going toward despair in verse 15. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? So many people feel like this. You know, like what's the point of being pure or wise or upright or honest? There's no justice in this world. We're all just going through the motions and then we die. So you see the dilemma that the teacher finds himself in. Wisdom has been the lens through which he analyzes life. He's studied it. He's internalized it. He's made progress by means of it. And yet, as he keeps thinking about wisdom, he's coming up against this hard reality. He's like, wait a minute. What happens to the fool is going to happen to me. Six feet under, the hand of the Harvard grad as of the homeless man will decompose at the same rate. Listen to the teacher's other statements on fate and death. Chapter three, verse 19. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beast is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath and man has no advantage over the beast for all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust and to dust all return. So it's actually even worse. It's not that what happens to the fool also happens to the wise person. Uh -uh. What happens to the beasts, the animals, is what happens to humans. Now, three weeks ago, I talked about how um, there are some secular philosophers and thinkers that argue uh, in a similar way. They say human beings are no more special than spiders or hyenas or chimpanzees. And that's the kind of reasoning that the teacher is doing now as he looks at life under the sun. Chapter nine, verse two. It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner. And he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun that the same event happens to all. His angst is, why have I been so very wise? The same event happens to us all. We're all going to die. And he goes on in the middle of verse 15. And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies 
just like the fool. So here's another reason he gives us that accomplishments ultimately don't satisfy. There is no enduring remembrance. Why? Because in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten. So let's test that premise, okay? Let's play a game. You shout it out, okay? I'm gonna ask you some questions. You shout out your response. Let's talk about Alexander the Great. Now, if there's someone that we should remember well, it's someone whose very name is the Great, right? So here we go, Alexander the Great. Where was he from? Oh, all right, see, very good. Macedonia, very good, two, two people knew it, very nice. Uh, we, had a, we have a bright, sharp group here. Uh, next question. When did he live? And I'm just talking century. 300 what? Okay, good. Yeah, 4th century BC, around there. Very good. Okay, nice. Now, here's the thing. From this point forward, our knowledge about Alexander, so after his name, where he's from, and when he lived, our knowledge about Alexander falls off abysmally. Okay? <laughs> so here's the next question. Which key battles did he win? Don't Google it. All right, good, good. Yeah, someone was like, he lost all his battles with his wife. But um, that's what someone told me after this service. I was like, okay. But, but that's the point. That's the point the teacher is making. There is no enduring remembrance. There's no enduring remembrance. The days to come will erase them all. They'll be long forgotten. And so he says, how the wise dies just like the fool. And so he concludes in verse 17, so I hated life. Because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and is striving after wind. Notice that he doesn't say, I hated my life. Somebody says, he says, I hated life. His conclusion is more general. He's not suicidal. He's reflective. He's raw. He's willing to unmask the illusions that many of us feel but ignore. That our ambitions lead us to embark on certain projects that lead to accomplishments, but death level the field, and time erases our footprint. For him, wisdom was the key that pierced through the fog of reality, and even that proved to be fleeting. What is it for you? For you, it may be your hard work or your intelligence or your attractiveness or your resourcefulness, or your family stability and history, or whatever it may be, death will level you with everyone else and time will erase your footprint. I know some of you are like, I thought you said you were full of joy today. <laughs> it's like, if this is joyful John, we don't wanna see crabby John, you know? <laughs> But so we get here to the question that we've been asking the whole time. What then is solid reality if this again turns up empty? What is solid reality? And that is to know that God shares his victory with his people. God shares his victory with his people. The experiment the teacher has uh, been undertaking is to analyze life under the sun. That is, with little or no awareness of the existence and uh, involvement, presence of God in the affairs of the world. What sense does life make apart from God? 
What do humans gain from all their toil? Now, let me tell you a little bit about the darker side of existential, uh, of individualism, rather, rather. The idea that people are autonomous, that we are our own God, we define ourselves, we determine our own destiny and purpose. Now, this idea picked up speed from existentialism. Now, here's how the philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre, you know, a French philosopher of the 20th century, describes uh, this belief system uh, in his book, Existentialism is a Humanism. He talks about how if someone is going to build a paper knife, now I don't know why he chooses a paper knife instead of just a regular steel knife. It doesn't change his point. But he says, if you're going to build a knife, um, you need to have first a concept in your mind of a knife, what a knife is, and then you need to build it according to a very specific formula. So, for the knife to come into being, it has to be produced in a very specific way. It can't look like a spoon or a fork, and it has to have a definite purpose, right? To cut things. So, he says, so in, before the knife exists physically, um, the, the concept of the knife is fixed in the mind of the craftsman making it. And so for the knife, um, essence comes before existence, right? Because its essence existed first in the mind, then it came into being. And then he says, okay, so in the Christian tradition, God created human beings. And so before human beings came into being, they existed in the mind of God, right? Uh, their essence was fixed in the mind of God. They're what we call the human nature. And so like the knife, human beings, our essence was before our existence. We existed in the mind of God, then he made us and we came into being. So, but then he says, but if God does not exist, as secular existentialists like himself believe, then human beings just popped up out of nowhere. And so there's no essence. There's no human nature to speak of. You know, rather, for us, contrary to the knife as before, our existence comes before our essence. So we come into the world like these blank canvases, he says. And it's up to you to paint what that canvas is going to be. Here's what he says. What do we mean here by existence precedes essence? Did I lose any of you? I feel like I've lost a couple. I'm sorry, okay. Here's what he says. What do we mean here by existence precedes essence? We mean that man first exists. He materializes in the world, encounters himself, and only afterward defines himself. There is no human nature since there is no God to conceive of it. Man is not only that which he conceives himself to be, but that which he wills himself to be. Man is nothing other than what he makes of himself. Okay, here's why I took you down that trail. Existentialism is a radical reimagining of who we are as human beings. It says you, the individual, decide who you're going to be. There's no human nature to follow. There's no divine purpose to fulfill. You're a blank canvas. No one can tell you that you're a man or no one can tell you that you're a woman. You decide. No one can tell you what marriage is. Who says marriage is between a man and a woman for life? You decide any and every configuration and combination. Anything that has to do with your body, you decide. You are autonomous. You're your own God. You define who you are. You determine your own purpose. Now, if you grew up in the West, that's the air you've been breathing 
from birth. You feel it all around you. I know that we feel it all around us. And if you've been in the church for any part of time, that alone doesn't solve it. Because as we said last week, with our minds, we may say, I follow Christ, but our hearts could still be deeply individualistic. Why? Because the music the movies, the magazines, the television shows, the news cycle, the textbooks, the schools, the institutions, the literature, the stories, the jokes, the traditions, even religion, even swaths within the Christian faith, all have been deeply shaped by this belief that we are, we are our own gods, we define who we are, we determine our purpose. Now, has the existential project brought the liberation, the hope, the goodness that it seemed to promise? Of course not. Here's how another uh, professor expresses the result of existential philosophy at the end of the 20th century. So this was written 1994 or so, uh, after a few decades of when existential philosophy had taken hold of much of our culture, many of our institutions, and so forth. Here's what he says, here's, here's the result. The anguish and alienation of 20th century life were brought to full articulation as the existentialist addressed the most fundamental naked concerns of human existence. Man was condemned to be free. He faced the necessity of choice and thus knew the continual burden of error. He lived in constant ignorance of his future, thrown into a finite existence, bounded at each end by nothingness. Man possessed no determining essence. Only his existence was given, an existence engulfed by mortality, risk, fear, ennui, contradiction, uncertainty. God was dead, and the universe was blind to human concerns, devoid of meaning and purpose. Man was abandoned on his own. All was contingent. To be authentic, one had to admit and choose freely to encounter the stark reality of life's meaninglessness. This was written at the end of the 20th century, and he sounds just like the teacher of Ecclesiastes. All is vanity. It is meaningless. You see, the result of existentialism with the hyper-individualism that followed it was anxiety. Anxiety, it's no coincidence that so many have called our generation the age of anxiety. How could it not be? If all we are is just a blank canvas, we're just an empty vessel, and it's up to us, it's up to you to fill up every single ounce of it. Could you imagine the pressure not to mess up with the hundreds of decisions we make every day? And how do we even know that we're making the right choices when we don't know where we come from, where we're going, or why it matters? Individualism says to you, you matter supremely, but what it really means is you're on your own. Good luck. There must be a better way. You see, in the gospel, we learn that God is supreme. God is supreme. Think of the moon. A full moon on a summer night is glorious. But what if the moon, instead of the sun, was placed at the center of the solar system? A total collapse of order and light and life. The moon is only glorious as it reflects the glory of the sun. On its own, the moon is utter darkness. And it's the same with us. 
We each have a particular glory that's been given to us by God only when we reflect his own glory. Apart from him, we are utter darkness. Listen, God does exist. We do not come into the world as empty canvases, blank canvases. We come into the world with a complete DNA, not only physically, but spiritually. The imprint of God on us makes us not spiders, hyenas, or chimpanzees. But God does not exist to make your dreams come true. He's not Disney. And our dreams are too small. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary in his understanding. No one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. Don't you love those verses from Isaiah? Yes, don't you love to know that you can hope? I mean, raise your hand if you just love that you can hope for strength in God. Only five of you, come on. Yes, we can renew our strength in our God. The Lord is the everlasting God. Listen, death cannot touch him. Time cannot erase his footprint. He will not grow tired or weary. You know, I hear Christians worry all the time. Oh, the church is becoming irrelevant. Oh, the secular agenda is winning the day. Woe is us. What's gonna happen to our children? What's gonna happen to our planet? Do you know what's gonna happen? The same thing that was gonna happen from before the beginning of time. Because God knows the end from the beginning. Do you think... Do you think that God is up in heaven wringing his hands, breaking his sweat, going, oh well, we had a good run. <laughs> Until along came the theory of evolution and the existentialist. Give me a break. God will not grow tired or weary. He will have each one of his elect. No one will be lost. He will gather his church from all the corners of the earth. Listen, the gates of hell let alone this fleeting secular age will not prevail against his church. And so is this the God you worship? Is this the God you worship? Are you the moon or the sun? Don't answer too quickly. Are you the moon or the sun? Do you live to create your own glory or do you find your meaning and purpose and joy and identity in life in reflecting the glory, the magnificence of our God? Our glory is like grass. God's glory is ineffable, beyond understanding, metaphor or language but oh, we can sense it, can't we? We can experience it. Because that's the amazing thing about our transcendent God is that he gives himself to his people. That's why Jesus came. Jesus came so that God could be our God and we could be his people. He came and he bore our sin. He came and he died our death so that death 
which is what has the teacher in angst, instead of bringing this short life to futility, could usher us into the eternal presence of God. That's why he came. That's why Christ came. He came for us, but he didn't just come to seal our eternal future. No, no. In the present, he has made us children of God. And it's together with the children of God that we grasp how high and low and wide and deep is the love of Christ for us so that we may be filled with the fullness of God. But it's only together with the saints. And I think some of you don't get this yet. You may come to church, you may read the Bible on your own, but you haven't fully come into the family of God. You still think, think that Jesus just came to make you this awesome individual. Yes, he does that too, but he came to make us a part of his family. He's gathering a people in the Lord's prayer. What does he say? Our father in heaven. That's what he says. When you pray, don't say my father in heaven. Give me, forgive me. That's what he says. He says, our father in heaven. Give us our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses. That's what he came to do, church. It's together with the people of God that we become the humans that God created us to be. And so, there is nothing this world or culture offers that will give you a greater worth than to know with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the King with universal power, died for you. He died for you. The Son of God loved me and gave himself for me, Paul says. He did it for you. He did it for you. As an individual, you will not arrive at a loftier vision. It's not gonna happen that God himself came and died for you, that Jesus came and left all his riches, became poor to make you rich, no matter where you come from, how oppressed or how poor or how nothing in the eyes of the world you are, it doesn't matter. Whatever your race, your education, your family, it just doesn't matter. God died for you. Not just for your family, not just for your tribe, your clan, your nation. You, the person. But it's together, you guys, it's together with the people of God. Not remaining in the prison of our own self. And I fear that some of you are still in the prison of your own self. Because you haven't fully come into the family. You still do church in a hyper-individualistic way. You've seen us ask, hey, we need help so we can pull off Sundays. We need volunteers. We're showing you the charts and we'll keep showing you. But if you keep responding, ah, yeah, they'll find someone. Hey, there's a hole in the body that you can fill. And if you're like, ah, yeah, mm, what are we doing? the body of Christ and it's together with the rest of the saints that we grasp the deep love of Christ for us so reject individualism reject it be done with it 
It's not easy because as I said, it's what you've been breathing since you were born. If you have two-year-olds, five, 10-year-olds, they've been breathing this stuff since they were in your belly. But it's okay because the gospel washes us clean. The gospel will rewire who we are and our understanding of ourselves and of our God and of the family that he's made us a part of. And so reject individualism and come, come with your tears, with your sweat, with your shame, with your deepest ambitions, come into the family of God. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. Lord, thank you. Thank you for your word. Oh, thank you, God, that you did not leave me just as an individual out there lost, thinking I was so great. Without you and without your family, Lord, you are supreme. You are the sun. We are the moon. On our own, we are nothing but darkness. I pray, Father, that we would learn that it's your very life that gives us life. It's your very light that gives us light. Thank you that we don't lose our individuality when we come to Christ, but it's through our glorious brothers and sisters who show us who you are in greater fullness that we come to know how much you love us. Thank you, Lord, for women and how they reflect so many of your attributes in such a beautiful way. Thank you, Lord, for men and how they reflect so many of your attribute, attributes and, uh, with such strength. Father, help us value and honor one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. Make us pure in thought and motive. Please, God, bring us into a deeper experience of the family of God as your people. Don't let us just assent to the faith with our minds, but with our hearts, just remain hyper individualistic as our culture has taught us. Thank you, Jesus, for sharing your victory with us. Your victory over death, over evil, over sin. Yes, every victory is yours. We love that. We love singing that. We love believing and proclaiming that. Thank you, O oh God, that in you our strength is renewed and we will soar. We will run. We will walk and not be faint. We love you. We worship you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head over to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself to us today.